Let's end the wars. Let's bring all the troops home from all the places is better than saying, well, let's leave them in Iraq, but let's bring them home from Syria. Now you just picked a fight with half the people. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. What's up, Liberty Lions? Welcome back to your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty here at the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is the 279th episode of this program. You know what that means, kids. It means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss with today's guest over at lionsofliberty.com slash 279. And guys, if you haven't already, I really want to encourage you to come join the conversation over in our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. It's really easy to join. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your little search bar there on Facebook. It should pop right up. And as long as you look like a real person, it'll help if you have some kind of political or libertarian something or other on your profile. But as long as you look like a real person, we're going to let you in there to join the conversation. And I mean, last week's episode where we discussed the Nicholas Sirwark, Ron Paul, states rights uh, flap, I guess if you want to call it, that certainly generated a lot of conversation. And it's really important to have this conversation. You know, we don't do the show because we're saying we are right. We've got everything figured out and listen to us. That's not the point. That's not at all the purpose of this program. The reason we do this show is to advance the conversation about the ideas of liberty. And obviously, we have our our thoughts on this matter, on the state's rights issue as it pertains to libertarianism. You can hear all about that by ticking back in your iTunes feed, your Stitcher feed, however it is you listen to this program. Go on back to episode 278, last Monday's program, to hear just what we're talking about. And it really is a great way for us to directly engage with our listeners and have a conversation. You know, a lot of people do disagree with our views on this issue, and we were able to hash it out and actually have some really respectful, productive dialogue. And that's really, again, why why we do this program. So please, I implore you, go join the Lions of Liberty Forum. And another great thing about the forum is that it's a place where you can submit questions that I'll answer in our Letters of Liberty mailbag segment. So stay tuned to that towards the end of this program after my interview with today's guest. My guest today is making his third appearance on this program, although it's his first time doing so as the managing director of the brand spanking new Libertarian Institute. When he's not busy with that, he is the host of Anti-War Radio, which airs out here in SoCal. He is also the opinion editor at Antiwar.com and continues to conduct interviews on foreign policy matters on his podcast, The Scott Horton Show. I am pleased to welcome back the great Scott Horton. Scott, are you ready to roar? Yeah, sure. I love complaining about stuff. All right. All right. We can do that. <laughs> now, Scott, one of my New Year's resolutions here on the show was to spend more time highlighting all the great work that others out there in the libertarian movement are doing. You've got a project that you just started yourself here in the last couple months with a couple other guys called the Libertarian Institute. So why don't you tell us, what is the Libertarian Institute all about and how did it come together? All right. Well, first of all, it's me, Sheldon Richmond, and Will Grigg and Jared LaBelle. Hopefully all of your audience are familiar with all these people, but Sheldon Richmond, of course, is, you know, basically Mr. Libertarian, economist, historian, polemicist on uh, virtually any issue under the sun, uh, libertarian as hell. People say he's a left libertarian, but I think he's pretty much just, you know, plumb line to me. I don't know. But uh, he's really great on virtually everything I can think of. And then you got Will Grigg, 
And uh, Will Grigg is an interesting case because uh, he's a former John Bircher who quit being a conspiracy theorist and quit being a right winger, basically, and has become much more libertarian. And then, you know, to our movement's great credit, has decided that he is really going to focus on the crimes of domestic and especially local and state, but I guess especially local police abuse and false convictions and this type of stuff, you know, criminal justice issues, which people, I, for whatever reason, I guess, tend to think of that as like ACLU kind of left wing activist sort of uh, territory or something. So I think it's a real benefit that we have somebody like Will Grigg who takes it on from a, you know, so-called right libertarian perspective there, speaking the language of, you know, more kinds of people than just the ACLU can reach when it comes to those kinds of things. And then Jerry LaBelle is the executive director of Taxpayers United for America. And that's a group that's been around for quite some time, I think 30 years or something. It's run by Jim Tobin. And they're a tax protest group out of Chicago, Illinois. And they have literally, you know, decades of successes in stopping taxes and rolling back uh, taxes and attempting to uh, well, and successfully, you know, defeating new taxes at the ballot box uh, when they're, you know, up for votes on referendums and whatever. They have a, a real history of getting work done. And so Jared is basically the executive director who sort of, you know, runs the show. So that's and quite, then, uh, quite the libertarian shops that you guys have gathered over there. So what exactly is the goal? Why did you decide to create this organization? And what what gap out there are you trying to kind of fill? Well, yeah. So good question. I guess. The thing is, is all of us, I think, have reputations of being reliably very libertarian. And yet all of us, I don't think any of us really are um, participants in any of the libertarian civil wars or kind of faction fights or any of those things from old days. And we're all very policy oriented. In other words, we all we don't just like talking about libertarianism. We want to live in a libertarian society as best as we possibly can, as much as we can. So while not necessarily being into politics, we are interested, you know, like for me, you know, I'm just the anti-war guy. I'll leave the actual libertarian angels dancing on the head of a pin to the rest of you guys and just try to focus on the wars. And so I think we're all kind of like that really oriented towards, you know, the facts and the policies themselves. And so the goal first then is to, I guess, try to have a solid enough network with all the other libertarian groups and institutions that we possibly can and see if we can find, because I think we almost all agree on everything other than tactics and immigration, you know, <laughs> but, much. but so, you know, immigration is the one issue where everybody's just going to always, you know, agree to disagree or, or agree to hate each other over it or whatever, I guess it's going to be. But otherwise, mostly people disagree about just what's the right way of going about seeking the same kind of things. We want hard money. We want to legalize drugs. We want to end the wars. We want, you know, if there's got to be cops, they need to be bound by the same rule of law as everybody else and, you know, some of these kinds of things. So anyway, point is my fantasy is and and I think it's already sort of kind of working. I'm, I'm trying. And but the point is that uh, to try to bring together, to try to be uh, an institute where kind of common ground place where different libertarian groups who maybe they don't really necessarily like each other historically or whatever, where we can all kind of come together and work together anyway. And then that's step one. And then step two is 
with liberal and conservative groups and to try to really be the bridge instead of just being the odd man out we will be the real moderate in a walter block sense moderate center between the left and the right instead of letting the extremists who are for every horrible thing be the center we will be the center and and we will be able to translate between the left and the right and and hopefully hold a coalition together with the left and the right on things like wars and you know the cops the drug wars and and I don't know about sound money, but at least accountability and into bailouts and corporate welfare, these kinds of things. As we've seen even in this election, not that it's necessarily true, but at least the perception is that, you know, Mr. Billionaire is the man of the people who defeated the man of the establishment, Hillary Clinton, and that that's the real schematic breakdown here. It's not really left and right. It's the people with all the power versus the rest of us. And we all want to fight back. So what I'm saying is, yeah, let's harness that and fight back against the very worst abuses of state power, particularly, of course, the wars, the drug war, the bailouts for billionaires and, you know, police state type corruption, that kind of deal. And then, you know, if we can do it once, then we can do it again and again and again. So, you know, I want to focus on foreign policy first, of course, as always, but there's going to be plenty to fight about. And especially the fact that it's a brand new presidential era beginning right now because people do break down time frames in terms of who's the president you know so it seems like a really good time to pick up disaffected left-wingers and disaffected right-wingers convert them to libertarianism and or also just help the left and the right work with the left and the right not just to proselytize to them to convert them but to get them to help organize their priorities in a way that puts our libertarian agenda at the forefront again you know peace justice end of the bailouts yeah so it really seems to me like an organization that is is meant to really push forward libertarian ideas but actually push them into the political realm and to do so realistically and and to do so realistically you cannot ignore that you're gonna have to work with people that don't fully agree with your world worldview whether they're people on the left people on the right or what have you so that that really seems to be what you guys are pushing here taking libertarian ideals not compromising them but rather forming coalitions with people who can agree with us on certain areas certain areas like the war on drugs or what have you areas that people of all sorts of of political persuasions can agree on. Yeah, and you know, I think the key here is you make the statement as brief as possible so that you can make the coalition as broad as possible. So for example, if somebody says, yeah, we need to cut the Navy budget so that we can spend that money on pre-kindergarten instead, well, you're going to really turn off half the people you're trying to reach by baking in your uh, you know, public school agenda or whatever your agenda is with that. For that matter, if you say we want to cut the Navy budget so that we can cut taxes, that also is going to turn off half the crowd. So let's just stick to let's cut the Navy budget. And we'll argue about the money later. Uh, we'll argue about what to do with it instead later. Right now, let's deprive the shipbuilding companies of it. That's the first order of business. Deprive the admirals of the right to spend it. First, we take care of that. So the briefer the statement, let's end the wars, let's bring all the troops home from all the places, is better than saying, well, let's leave them in Iraq, but let's bring them home from Syria. Now you just picked a fight with half the people. So, but can we just sign on to, hey, let's just give up the war on terrorism. Let's just give up, you know, rule in the Middle East and just call the whole thing off. I think with a, a simpler statement, you can get more people to sign on.
Well, yeah, we hope so. And, and as, as uh, I don't know if we mentioned, people can, people can find the Libertarian Institute over at libertarianinstitute.org. So be sure to check that out. And as you mentioned, you are the foreign policy guy. That has been your focus. And I think you've got quite an interesting task coming up here with the Trump administration because uh, he's really been quite an enigma. I mean, out on the campaign trail, one minute he's decrying the Iraq war, uh, opposing regime change. The next minute he's talking about bombing the shit out of ISIS and killing the families of terrorists and taking all the oil. So you don't really know what to think. Then he becomes president-elect. And he starts meeting with a broad range of folks. He meets with uh, Tulsi Gabbard, a Democrat who's, who was very much opposed to our military interventions. And then he goes and meets with Henry Kissinger. So it's really hard to know what to make of him uh, when it comes to foreign policy. But I think the best we can do is look at the people he's actually appointing and choosing for his cabinet. So I want to spend some time with you now to take a look at a few of those selections and, and, and kind of get an idea of what we might be able to expect uh, from the Trump administration, at least from what we know of them anyway. And I, I want to start with the guy who had a a very interesting exchange recently uh, during his confirmation hearing with with Marco Rubio, and that is Rex Tillerson. He is a a former ExxonMobil CEO. This, of course, has the left in a a tizzy because if he worked for a company like Exxon, and which produces oil, and we all know oil is evil, then he must be evil. Um, I don't know if the analysis is really that simple, but uh, he has seemed to be taking some decent positions. I know Rand Paul asked him about the Iraq war, and he seems to be opposed to Iraq war, opposed to regime change in general as a policy. And friendly with Russia. And, and during that moment with Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio seemed to really not like the idea that 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 uh, Tillerson could be friendly with Putin, friendly with Russia. He was pushing forward the idea that Putin is a war criminal, really, really wanted Tillerson to say that phrase. Putin is a war criminal. He refused to do it in that hearing. Uh, it's it's all I really don't know what to make of Tillerson. And we don't have that much background to go on when it comes to foreign policy outside of his business dealings. But uh, what mm-hmm. is your take on Rex Tillerson, Scott? Yeah, well, it's a hell of an interesting thing, isn't it? So, I mean, really what we have here is no neocons. We don't have anybody from the American Enterprise Institute or really any of that whole Dick Cheney crew. So who else is there left to pick from? And, you know, it's kind of strange. They made uh, uh, Dan Coats, the senator, uh, to uh, named him to be the director of national intelligence, which is just, hmm, it seems, you know, sort of like it's it's uh, slim pickings and they're not sure really what to do. So do you think that's they, a concerted effort on Trump to specifically keep out neocons in general or people that? Well, are I mean, the thing is, they all just declared open warfare against him, you know, back a year and a half ago and never relented. So they pretty much took themselves all out of the running, you know, under the theory that if they threw everything they had at him. They'd stop him. And 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 secure the election of Hillary Clinton instead. I mean, Robert Kagan and them literally held fundraisers for her. She actively sought out the neocons and and they really supported her. A great many of them did anyway, which is part of what sank her. Right. She's lacked such self-awareness so badly that she didn't realize that, you know, Robert Kagan is only going to weigh you down, you know, rather than uh, than make you more acceptable to people. But anyway, so. He he did interview, you know, quite a number of of neocons and and neocon fellow traveler types like John Bolton, who he ended up telling no. And then he goes for Tillerson. I saw one story who, on that. And I don't know how true it is, but it did make me laugh that I heard that Trump didn't like his mustache. And that was why he was out of contention. <laughs> well, you know what? I I'd bet you a thousand bucks. It's true. He mentioned that. But, you know, the fact is he couldn't get past Rand Paul on the Foreign Relations Committee. He's the swing vote on the Foreign Relations Committee. And he had already said, don't try it. So that was pretty much the end of that anyway. 
But yeah, the mustache is absolutely ridiculous. It really makes you wonder just how funny looking is his upper lip that he's hiding it under that thing, you know, but I don't know. It's almost like he wants us to see him as a sort of supervillain with that ridiculous stash, but yeah, anyway. or something anyway, I, he just looks like a jackass to me, but yeah, but so now Tillerson, here's a vast oversimplification, which maybe I'm just wrong. This is just kind of sort of the way I've always thought about it is that the liberal internationalist school, basically Samantha Power and all the, you know, humanitarian interventionist types, they basically represent the bankers. The realists represent the oil companies and the neocons represent the arms manufacturers in Israel. And these are the three major factions that fight over control of American foreign policy. And so the realists are people like Henry Kissinger who are real politic and national interest as opposed to those neocons and liberal interventionists who are so very morality-based, right? It's not that they're imperialists at all. It's that they just love everyone so much that they have this uh, world order of liberal values <laughs> that they're promoting. But this is the frame of reference that they create, you know? And so in this scheme of things, Tillerson is a Henry Kissinger guy. He's a, a realist from Exxon, which is Standard Oil of New Jersey, you know, the old Rockefeller empire. In other words, he represents the people who built the giant machine that the neocons and liberal internationalists have basically hijacked and run into the ground. And so, you know, the fact that he's a businessman doesn't make him any kind of libertarian at all. I mean, to me, what's hopeful about him is the fact that he listens to Henry Kissinger clearly and that Kissinger is less bad on Russia than most of the rest of the foreign policy establishment. And he's Kissinger. So, you know, to you and me, that just means boo, hiss, you know, swimming pools full of blood, war criminal or whatever. But in Washington, D.C., that means the most credible one of us. And so when he says that, hey, 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 it's OK that Trump wants to get along with Russia, I think we should, too, then maybe that'll help a little bit, you know, to cover his right flank, or in this case, his left flank from all the criticism that, you know, he's a sock puppet of Putin and this, that and the other thing. When the fact of the matter is, and we could go into more detail if you want, but I'll just go ahead and boldly assert that 100 percent of the problems between America and Russia are America's fault. Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama's fault, Hillary Clinton's fault, and everything supposedly horrible and wrong about what Russia has been doing lately, a lot of it is horrible, but 100% of it is in reaction to what America has done. And so if Trump really followed Kissinger's lead, and if Tillerson is here because he wants to help Trump follow Kissinger's lead on that, I'm for it. But of course, only in a vacuum, that also raises the question of what are they really up to? If you listen to somebody like Dana Rohrabacher, he goes, man, this Cold War with Russia is terrible. We shouldn't be picking a fight with Russia. We shouldn't be overthrowing the government in Ukraine. We shouldn't be causing these problems. We need to ally with Russia against China. <laughs> and so then you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Rohrabacher. So he's one of the kooks that Trump uh, actually interviewed for uh, Secretary of State and you know, I had mixed feelings about that, but really I'm glad he did get it because he really is bad on China. It's the only reason he's good on Russia, I think, is so that he can be bad on China, uh, Dana Rohrabacher. But and these are the kinds of people we're left with. I mean, it's not like we have Ron Paul and, and which is the best Ron Paul advisor, Lou or Tom. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, why are the neocons like pe- people like Marco Rubio? Uh, we see Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham. Why are maybe maybe Cruz to a lesser extent, but Lindsey Graham for sure and John McCain? Why are they so obsessed with Russia, particularly right now? Maybe they always have been, but at this moment in time, it really seems like ISIS is forgotten about in mainstream politics, and now the new enemy because they, I guess, hacked our election by talking about third parties and maybe at worst releasing true information about what how the DMC was rigging their primary. Uh, why? But why are they so obsessed with Russia? Why does there seem to be this push? I mean, I saw they're sending more troops to to Poland right now, uh, just just before Trump's inauguration. So, what is the really the crux behind this push to be aggressive or at least take an aggressive posture against Russia? Well, the thing is, it has uh, nothing to do with they hack, uh, you know, a reaction to them supposedly hacking our election whatsoever. And that's the the latest talking point. But if you just go back to the 1990s, uh, which wasn't that long ago, depending on how old you are, <clears throat> uh, I'm getting kind of old. But you go back to the 1990s, the Soviet Union fell apart. It ceased to exist on Christmas Day, 91. Uh, they had a democratically elected government. The U.S. rigged the election of 1996 for Boris Yeltsin, who was going to lose it or presumably was going to lose it. And at the same time, they started expanding NATO. You mentioned troops going into Poland. Well, Bill Clinton brought them into NATO, which is a military alliance against Russia back in 1996. And it was really just to buy Polish votes so he'd be sure to win Illinois uh, at the time. Uh, That was a major part of his reasoning why was just domestic politics. And everybody thought, what's Russia going to do about it? Uh, George Bush Sr. had promised not to expand NATO. But the thinking was, well, we can do what we want. We'll sell a lot of Lockheed products. And Lockheed had sponsored the committee for NATO expansion. And the whole thing would be to standardize the militaries of Eastern Europe to bring them into the alliance in order to sell a lot of Lockheed product in the name of getting all these militaries fighting with the same equipment and fighting in the same way and that kind of thing. And is for that a time, what this all comes down to once again, it's really just needing that yeah. enemy, needing that that threat to as an excuse to not only arm ourselves, but arm our quote allies. And of course, they have to buy all their stuff from the same few companies. Yeah. I mean, that really is, I think, the bottom line. Well, there are a few different bottom lines. I mean, one of them truly is ideological that this really is, you know, the American way at the end of the 20th century really is the end of history, free markets and democracy, you know, Bill Clinton style for, you know, whatever that means, soft American imperialism, uh, not very soft, uh, depending on who you are, really. But that, you know, under that kind of rubric, that the American way is the human way and it's going to be our way or the highway. No one's allowed to stand in front of us and. You know, a lot of this, too, Mark, has to do with who gets to drink cocktails with who at their little party. So I think to a degree far worse than we would want to imagine or entertain, NATO is a social club for a lot of people who aren't really born duchesses and things but like to pretend that they are. And so, you know, they get to go and be kind of pseudo royalty as part of this very high power elite establishment for Europe and America. And it's, you know, it's old and it's venerable and it's uh, a place where you punch your ticket in your career that, you know, you're somebody powerful at NATO for a while and this kind of thing. It's, it's its own bureaucracy with its own, you know, public choice economics behind it, uh, pushing it forward. And so what they've done through 
the Bush and Obama years is they've expand they've expanded NATO all the way up to including the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, right there on the Russian border. Where you know when we have troops there, we do have troops there at least from time to time. I don't know if they're permanently stationed there, but we have had troops there, uh, and they're you know literally within a couple of hundred miles of Moscow. It's as and if so, as if Russia came and had one day had troops in Cuba, troops in the Bahamas, troops in Mexico, troops in Canada. We'd probably be a little freaked out. That's exactly you know the very best way to put it is to just put the shoe on the other foot for a minute. If America's economy had been bankrupt under Ronald Reagan, we lost the Cold War, and the Soviets then came and expanded the commie Warsaw Pact to absorb all of Western Europe, and now they're working on North America too. And then when the Canadians resist them, they overthrow the government there. You know, when the Canadians elect a government that won't go along. That's what we've done in Ukraine. And Ukraine is Russia Jr., just like Canada is America Jr., right, like Homer Simpson says. Ukraine is Russia's Canada. And that's where in 2014, in early 2014, America overthrew the government in Kiev again for the second time in 10 years. And that's what precipitated the crisis in Crimea, where that's where the Russians had their last warm water seaport or, you know, deep water uh, military port. And they've had a lease agreement. I mean, Putin was perfectly happy with the status quo. Ever since the Soviet Union fell on the Yeltsin years and later the Putin years, the Medvedev years, they had no they never tried to steal Crimea. They never annexed Crimea. They had a lease agreement with the government of Ukraine. It really had always been a Russian province since the 1780s, since the days of our Articles of Confederation until 1954, when uh, the communist uh, dictator Khrushchev in a, you know, a drunk one night, gave it to Ukraine. But even then, uh, the status quo was holding fine until America overthrew the government there twice in 10 years. And Putin gave a little speech where he said, you know, he was being sarcastic. I thought about how nice it would be to go on vacation on a holiday down there to visit our NATO friends at our former naval base down there at Sevastopol. <laughs> and you know what I decided was no Actually, I think that we'll stay and you guys can come and visit us during the holidays instead. How about that? And so he just drew his line and that was it. And by the way, not one person died when Russia seized Crimea. They left their bases that they already had on the peninsula. They did fire one warning shot above the head of some Ukrainian troops. But that was it. Not one person was killed. They make it sound like, you know, this is Hitler rolling into Poland or something. But yeah. All right, Scott, let's move on to some of the other cabinet picks from Donald Trump here. And this is a guy who's uh, he's quite the character. He's certainly got a lot of quotes and interesting quotes associated with him, including his confirmation hearing. But uh, I'm, of course, referring to his choice for secretary of defense, uh, a general, James Mad Dog Mattis. What can you tell us about Mad Dog? Well, he's the guy that let Osama go back in 2001, in December 2001. But the truth is he was just following orders. He begged, apparently begged George W. Bush. He was the commander of the Marines in Afghanistan. And uh, just like the CIA guys were begging Bush for Army Rangers who were also available, they were denied. And I guess it would be nice if I could say, and that's when James Mattis became insubordinate and told Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and George W. Bush to go to hell. He was going to go after bin Laden anyway and get his ass and got him. But that's not what happened. Instead, he... Uh, Said, up to whatever you say, sir. And that was it. They let him go. And then also he helped with the invasion of Iraq. He was the tip of the 
the commander in charge of the Marine Corps uh, invasion of Iraq. Now, I'm not exactly sure. I know I always thought that the 3rd Infantry Division had been in the lead of the invasion from Kuwait there, but I guess I could go back and check. It could be they had two different spears and he was the tip of one of them, but he was a, a big part of that invasion. Although now he claims he was against it, right? Not that he resigned and warned us against it or anything. Not that he didn't actually help lead the invasion itself. But no, don't worry. Now he's willing to tell us that he was wiser at the time. Trust him. It is amazing how many people out there are, are firmly opposed to the Iraq war now that it is so politically unpopular. Uh, but if you look back, a lot of those people at the time were uh, at, 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 at best silent, at worst active participants, as in the case of Mad Dog. Right. Yeah. And I mean, just think how powerful it would have been if somebody like Colin Powell or somebody like uh, James Mattis had resigned and just said, look, I eat bullets for breakfast and I love killing Iraqis, but I'm just saying this is stupid. Saddam Hussein is the enemy of Osama bin Laden. They're lying to you. Let's not do this. This is horrible. Look, we're going to cause a civil war. Whatever any idiot could have told you why not to do it. You know, in fact, half the population of this country knew better at the time, although that gets, you know, washed out of history in all the revisionism. Uh, even with all the lies and propaganda, only half the American idiot population was even willing to go along with it even at the time. But um, so, yeah, if somebody like Mattis had opposed it, I don't know if he could have stopped it, but he could have given it a shot. And we know he didn't. But then the other thing that I know most about or that I think is most important to say about him is that he's really horrible on Iran. And, um, you know, it's funny that the, the Americans who aren't over the fact that the Iranians overthrew the American sock puppet fascist dictatorship in their country back 40 years ago, uh, almost uh, 40 years ago, are the same ones who think that the Iranians had no right to because we had installed their fascist government 26 years before and they should have been over it we by now. We already gave you a fascist by then. government. You don't need to install a new one. Yeah. Yeah. And so here they should have forgiven the fact that they were still under the thumb of an American sock puppet fascist dictatorship for the last 26 years straight leading up to that point. But uh, it's perfectly fair for Americans to hold a grudge over the Iranian Revolution of 79. Or if you want to be generous to him, the Beirut barracks bombing, the Marine Corps barracks bombing of 1983, which even Ronald Reagan admitted was his damn fault that those soldiers, those Marines shouldn't have been there at all and that it was a ridiculous mistake. And why would he take sides in a war like that? And he got them out of there. And so you would think that Mattis could say, you know what? Yeah, that was horrible. It was 243 American Marines were killed, something like that, in a truck bombing there. But still, it was 1983 and business is business. This is statecraft. We're not supposed to, you know, have these kinds of, you know, neighborhood grudges that we can't get over. And in this case, you know, when James Mattis invaded Iraq, whether he knew it or not, he was doing it for the Ayatollah of Iran. That's whose interests he was serving. He's Iran's best friend in the whole wide world, whether he wants to admit it or not. So if you ask me, he's got no right whatsoever to be an Iran hawk and sit here crying about Iran in Syria or crying about Iranian support for Hezbollah or anything else. He did the biggest favor for the mullahs in Iran that anyone could have ever done in the world in overthrowing Saddam Hussein. So he has a right, I think, to just completely shut the F up about that. 
So I'm getting the sense that you're not you're not feeling Mattis here as much of a uh, uh, non-interventionist because some libertarians actually seem to be pretty excited about this pick just because he, I guess, has uh, expressed some reservations in hindsight about going into Iraq. That's really the only positive I could find. Bah. And that's a yeah. Stretch, I mean, look, said. yeah, he's misquoted all the time saying to Obama on the question of Iran. And then what if this happens? And then what if this happens? And then what? But if you go back and look closer at that reporting, what you'll find is he's objecting to Obama doing the nuclear deal with Iran. He's objecting to Obama making peace with Iran, and that's why Obama fired him. So what he was saying was, okay, so what if you sign the nuclear deal and then they attack our ships in the Gulf? Or what if you sign the nuclear deal and then they help support Hezbollah more? Or whatever. So it sounds like the kind of anecdote when you take it out of context where someone is saying we should bomb Iran and he's saying, yeah, but then what? What about the next day? What about the next day? Right. It sounds like a critic of an adventurous foreign policy talking. But no, it's a critic of peace. Here, Obama was taking the largest fake outstanding issue on the table between America and Iran, the pretended nuclear weapons threat from their peaceful civilian safeguarded nuclear program. And he was taking it off the table so that we get along with Iran better. And all Mattis could do was say, yeah, but in my imagination, this isn't going to work because Iran is just going to keep being the worst people in the whole wide world, which is a bogus argument anyway, because if that's really true, then you would want to secure their nuclear program even more. If, you know, if they're nothing but a bunch of terrorists, but for some reason they're willing to sign an additional protocol to their safeguards agreement, let's go ahead and go with that while we can. What do you want to do? Just kick them out of the nonproliferation treaty that they're a member in good standing of and force them to go ahead and make nukes? That was the John Bolton policy in North Korea, and now they have a dozen of them. When George W. Bush took office, they were still within the nonproliferation treaty and under the deal that Bill Clinton had struck with them, and George W. Bush and John Bolton blew it up. And all it did was put nukes in the hands of the North Koreans and a whole other level of negotiation that would have to be accomplished in order to get them to ever give them up, which may be impossible, actually, at this point. All right, Scott, I've got a couple more Trump cabinet picks I want to look at with you. But first, I need to take a minute out to give a quick word to today's sponsor. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of competition for your ears, and it's hard to find time to listen to everything. But there's one show that I make sure to carve out the time to listen to every single day, and that's the Jason Stapleton program. Jason has been a guest on this show before, and he really does a fantastic job with his show, where he breaks down current events from a libertarian perspective five days per week. That's right. Five days per week. I don't know how he does it, but it's not just a podcast. It's also a live daily studio show, which broadcasts over at jasonstapleton.com. You can, of course, find his podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast. You should have no problem finding Jason Stapleton as well. And the great thing about Jason's show is that it's so professionally done that you have no concerns about sharing it with your parents, your friends, your family. You're not going to get any of that Alex Jones conspiracy stuff. You're just going to get straightforward talk about libertarian ideals in our rapidly changing world. Be sure to check out the Jason Stapleton program. I want to touch on a couple uh, a couple other of these guys that Trump has picked here. And uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this this General Michael Flynn character. Yeah, well, first of all, he's a murderer. He was the right-hand man, the uh, head of intelligence for the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, the top-tier special forces, Delta Force, and Dev Grew, Navy SEALs. 
and their commander, Stanley McChrystal, in during, uh, especially during the Iraq War surge in 2007. And basically, they're the guys who integrated network information uh, analysis where, you know, basically the computer screen draws maps of who all cell phone has ever called anybody else's cell phone. And then they just go out there and hunt them down and kill them. And it's basically like having a computerized conspiracy theory machine that can give you data, but no real knowledge, no real information as to who's who, what it means that this phone has ever called that phone. Uh, all it can tell you is here are now a bunch of new targets on your list of people to kill. And that's exactly how they did it. And they take all the credit for wrapping up the Sunni insurgency in Iraq during the surge. But that's not even what did it at all. What did it all was actual Sunni militiamen on the ground, tribal militiamen on the ground who decided to turn on and marginalize the jihadists who'd been helping them fight the Americans up until that time. And it was their very human intelligence, very local intelligence on the ground in their own country that made that possible. But anyway, they took their giant failure, and all they did was end up fighting for their enemies and getting kicked out anyway, by the way. But then they took their myth of the surge in Iraq, and they turned it into an entire sales job, uh, a con artist job, really, for doing the exact same thing in Afghanistan. And there, Mike Flynn, and who, he's now going to be the national security advisor to Donald Trump. There, Mike Flynn, again, was McChrystal's right-hand man doing this same network analysis, this bogus computerized conspiracy theorizing as to who all is a Taliban insurgent and who all is guilty of what. And, uh, you know, according to the Washington Post, Dana Priest in the Washington Post, uh, these guys admitted to her, the, the top tier commanders of special forces admitted to her that at best they had an error rate of 50 percent on these night raids. And I don't know exactly what was the percent where people were killed on the night raids, but it was high, you know, maybe 20 or 25 percent or something like that. And it is also Error clear. Rate. What a heartless, heartless way to talk about just killing innocent people. Yeah. And by the way, we're talking about literally the Delta Force commandos coming in your house at three o'clock in the morning like the boogeyman, like exactly like the tales of totalitarian societies from the 20th century from the NKVD and the Soviet Union and the Nazi Gestapo in Germany. Now, this is what they do. They come for you in the night, and your neighbors won't stand up for you because they're so damn terrified that they're next. And what can you do when everybody's just completely ruled? You know, it's absolute terror. And, of course, this is a very kind of, you know, macho society and whatever, too, where they take this level of humiliation in front of their wives and in front of their daughters. You know, I don't know how much more seriously they could possibly take it than you or I would take it. But apparently it bothers them even extra on top of how any other man in the world would feel in that same situation. And then Gareth Porter has analyzed and shown how, you know, when they bring these guys to the Bagram prison, you know, after a couple of years, they finally had some sort of pseudo legal process for these people. And they had a rule where they could only hold them for two weeks unless they had a real, you know, excuse, some kind of reason that they could articulate for holding them. And how then it would be 90 something percent of them would be released. So these are all the people who are being rounded up on the night raids and grabbed on the night raids. And, you know, when it comes down to can you prove this guy did anything at all? The answer was almost always no, we can't. And it was the same kind of error rate, by the way, in all the sweeps in Iraq where they even admit U.S. Army admitted that, yeah, probably 90 percent of the people we grabbed were innocent. It's just, you know, like the 1980s in South Central L.A., just grabbing every fighting age male. 
And another Iran hater, by the way. Yeah, he even tried to blame Benghazi on Iran. Michael Flynn did. Oh, and here's why. It's because his buddy and co-author is Michael Ledeen. And some of your younger uh, audience members might not know, but he is one of the older but uh, much crazier of the neoconservatives, but a very influential one. And when you read these stories about Mike Flynn believes that Russia, China, Iran, ISIS, Iran's sworn enemy, and Venezuela and everybody in the world, North Korea, and everybody in the world is all in on it against us. Where is he getting this stuff from, man? He's saying basically every country in the world that we don't control is part of an axis of evil trying to destroy the USA. Uh, where's, where's that come from? It comes from Michael Ledeen. Michael Flynn can't come up with that kind of, you know, nonsense on his own. He needs help from this kook who's now just, you know, exiled from AEI is now just at the foundation for the defense of democracies, which is, you know, basically a, a Likudnik nuthouse over there. All right, well, one more guy I want to touch on here, and his name is David Friedman, and I'm not talking about the libertarian economist, so please do not get confused out there, but he has actually been selected as the potential, I guess, ambassador to Israel, and from what I can tell, this guy is like to the right of Ariel Sharon. This guy is about as hardline as you can get. So what, what do you know about David Friedman, and, and uh, the, especially as it relates to something Trump has, has touted, something he wants to do, which is bring peace to the Middle East. So uh, what do you think of David Friedman and uh, the possibility of him... Helping with that? Not helping with that? Nah. Listen, anything uh, Horton's Law goes that uh, any good promise they make you, you can forget it. And any bad promise you can take to the bank. So I I know I'm breaking Horton's Law when it comes to Trump's Russia policy. Uh, I think he actually means that. And I approve of, of anything he can do to ratchet down tensions with Russia. I think it's the most important thing of all. But on virtually anything else, Horton's Law rules... And in the case of Israel-Palestine, he never meant – let me see if I could say this right. If Donald Trump meant that he really wanted a deal in Palestine, then that would mean he would have you know, explained somewhat. He would have betrayed in his answer the fact that he actually knows the first thing about it and actually has decided that he cares about the Palestinians, or at least that he cares that Israel's treatment of the Palestinians creates a massive national security risk for the people of, say, for example, New York City and Washington, D.C., and that something has to be done about the state of permanent siege and brutal military occupation that the Palestinians live under, and damn it, he's going to do something about it, whether the Israelis like it or not. That's the tone that you'd be hearing if Donald Trump meant that he was actually going to do something about it. The only context in which he said he's going to do something about it is sort of you know, completely wistful, uh, just sort of daydreaming about, you know, I hear it's a really big deal, a land deal. I wonder if I could make it, you know, I hear there's a problem outstanding. Yeah, it's a real estate deal. There's a problem outstanding. Maybe we could come to an agreement and then I would get credit for being a guy who made a great deal or whatever. That's the only context in which he said this. In other words, he has no idea about the war of 48 or the war of 67 or who are the Palestinians or, you know, do they have rights like other human beings, or are they, you know, simply uh, obstacles to Israeli greatness or whatever it is. And so, you know, he's just nominated people that he knows in his life who claim to know a lot about it. 
<laughs> and then guess who they are? They're people who, as you said, are right-wing Israeli nationalists. And it's not just David Friedman. Again, as you said, not Milton Friedman's son. Totally different guy. It's not just him. It's Greenblatt, too, is another lawyer friend of Trump's who has been given the job of peace negotiator, separate from the ambassador to Israel. But both of these guys are hardcore right-wing nationalists who have made it clear that they want to annex the West Bank, but not in any way to imply that they want to give equal rights to the Palestinians and make them citizens of Israel. They will still be, you know, God knows what's supposed to happen to them. I don't know if they ever really say but they just say that Israel is one land between the river and the sea, period. And any Palestinians in the way, you know, whatever's supposed to happen to them, whether they'll be killed or just force marched or just steadily colonized until they just it's standing room only and they've got nothing left to do but jump in the well or what is the plan? I don't know. But what I thought was a very telling quote of Friedman was, ah, geez, who even knows how many Palestinians live in the West Bank anyway? Like, oh, man, really? Is that where we're going with this now, huh? Is not only just denying that this is their land, but hey, let's just deny that they're even here. Let's just take it all. And uh, so, yeah. Just a couple guys selling falafels out of a truck. That's it. Yeah. And so the only and, and I mean, I think just think and this fits with Trump's worldview perfectly, which is these people are white. They speak English and they're up against a bunch of barbarian savages whose language I can't understand. And what else do I need to know? I'm already done learning stuff right now. That's it. And so it's us and them versus the barbarian hordes. Whose side are you on? Yeah, that's the way Trump thinks. And he's already decided. And politically, he'd be insane to take on the Israel lobby. He would have to care, and he doesn't. He clearly doesn't. So you're just not going to see any movement on that. The only exception to that that I know of that I thought at least was interesting, I don't know if I'd buy it, but Yakov Hirsch is a leftist, a Jewish leftist writer at MondoWeiss.org, and I interviewed him, and he told me that Netanyahu is such a patronizing jerk that he makes Donald Trump look like your favorite grandpa or whatever it is, and that he just talks like that to everyone. You think he treated Obama like Obama was his butler? He's going to talk to Trump the same way because he talks to everyone that way. And even if he's been briefed that don't talk to this guy that way, he's going to anyway because he's Benjamin Netanyahu and how we must – put faith in that basically to to see trump find, and you have to admit because again trump doesn't know anything about it so netanyahu's going to really be feeling that and feeling the role of instructor you know on on all the facts and and all the policy and everything else and hopefully trump will rebel against that and then of course the other thing is if he really just gives the israelis carte blanche then that means they're going to bomb gaza again they're going to steal god knows what you know amounts of more land in east jerusalem and on the west bank and uh you know who else knows or who knows what other crazy things they might do that are going to cause problems with the rest of the Arab states in the region, each of which America has its own relationship with. And that at some point, it's going to come to Trump telling Netanyahu, hey, man, I need you to tone it down a minute there. And at that point, Netanyahu is going to give him the finger and tell him, oh, no, you don't tell me what to do, blah, blah, blah. And we're going to have this fight. And then it's going to have to come down to personalities and, you know, basically a measuring contest between these guys of who's in charge. And, you know, this is the same thing when Bill Clinton 
was the president and Netanyahu was the prime minister the first time in 1996. After his first meeting with Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton said, who in the F does this guy think he is? I can't believe it. Who's the superpower here? You know, because Netanyahu had just sat Bill down and just given him the third degree, like, I don't know, your meanest friend's mom when you were a kid or whatever. You know what I mean? Just people don't like being treated that way. So hopefully... Hopefully there'll be a personal problem between Trump and Netanyahu at some point in the near future. I don't I'd know. I'd love to be a fly in the wall on that on that first meeting from from the sounds of things here. Uh, now, Scott, one more thing I want to ask you real quick. Obviously, this is a little bit of a fantasy, but if Donald Trump were to just call you up and you, as soon as you hang up with me here, you get another phone call. Oh, my God, it's, it's Donald Trump. And he says, you know, Scott, I've been thinking a lot. I don't really know that much about foreign policy. You're right. I need some advice. What is the one word of advice you would give to Donald Trump if he were to actually take it? The one word of advice. Well, when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would have to be. Well, can I give you two to choose from? Why not? not? All right. (laughs) If we're going to fantasize about Donald Trump taking your advice, we may as well let you go wild. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I'll go. I'll go completely nuts and I'll say two different ones. The first one is I would explain the whole dynamic of Nixon can go to China and how a right wing Republican can make peace wherever they want, where a Democrat never could. And so you should go to Moscow. You should go to Pyongyang. You should go to Tehran and you should make peace with all of America's enemies. And that would be the biggest, classiest, hugest success and stick it to all the haters who want all these horrible Cold Wars and just go and make deals. We have so much to negotiate with here, man, that we could do it and get him to really accept that. That Why do we have to have a beef with any of these countries, really? If I had to narrow that down, I'd say abolish nukes, work with Russia to abolish our nukes and then to lead the rest of the world in following our example in abolishing nukes. That could be done. There's only what a handful of nuclear weapon states. So that could be done, but it would absolutely need American and Russian uh, cooperation to do so. And then the other would just be more like a personnel thing. And that is you just don't ever hire anyone who ever had anything to do with the American Enterprise Institute, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, the Foreign Policy Initiative, the Center for a New American Security, or the Project for a New American Century, if we're going to go back that far, uh, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and the Center for Security Policy, all of these Likudnik think tanks. I guess you probably wouldn't be able to avoid having some people from the Council on Foreign Relations, but not Bill Crystal and not Max Boot and not Eric Edelman. No neocons allowed. If their name is on rightweb.org, you don't hire them. And uh, that would be my thing because those guys are just nothing but trouble. That's George W. Bush. All right, Scott. Well, in case any of our listeners out here want to learn more from you, learn more about what you're doing, uh, or maybe Donald Trump is listening. Maybe he wants to learn more. Why don't you just let everybody know how they can find all your work, uh, the current shows you're doing, and, of course, your work at the Libertarian Institute. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, like you said at the beginning, I'm the opinion editor of Antiwar.com, so I do uh, I pick and choose all the viewpoints for you there. I'm the managing director of the Libertarian Institute and work with a bunch of great guys there. Well, a handful of really great guys, uh, Will Grigg, Sheldon Richmond, and Jared LaBelle on that. It's our brand new thing. We're just getting started. So come and check us out at libertarianinstitute.org slash support. And then uh, I guess just follow me on Twitter at Scott Horton Show. And sorry if I hurt your feelings saying something mean. <laughs> Scott Horton, thanks so much for once again coming on this program. You're just a wealth of information and knowledge, and it's always a blast to have you on. 
Appreciate it, Mark. Take care, Scott. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the extremely knowledgeable and always opinionated Scott Horton. Please do check out his great interviews at The Scott Horton Show and his newest project, The Libertarian Institute. Again, I will link to all of this stuff over in today's show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash 279. And if you're a fan of this program, and I have to imagine you might be if you've made it this far, I'd like to implore you to help us reach more people and bring this conversation about the ideas of liberty to more of those earbuds out there. You can do so by sharing this program. Just hit that little share button from our Facebook feed at facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Retweet our stuff over on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. You can even tweet your hate and criticism at us if you like. Some folks do enjoy doing that from time to time. And of course, the easiest number one thing you can do after that is to leave us a five-star rating and a great review over on iTunes. Even if that's not how you listen to the show, it's by far the largest podcasting platform. And the more positive reviews and ratings we have, the more likely people are going to find the program. So it's a huge, huge help. Now, I know we had a bit of a longer interview today. That's Scott Horton. He can go on, but it's all great stuff. But when I make promises, I keep them. So I'm going to try to quickly hit on a few of your mailbag questions. Again, you can submit those by joining the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type Lions of Liberty Forum in your Facebook search bar and click join and we'll get you right in there as long as you are a real person. And I'll post a weekly thread asking for questions from listeners. And while I might not get to all of them every week, I assure you I am compiling a list and I'll try to get to most of them eventually unless they're repeats or or stuff I've just talked about recently. But I I may even do a full mailbag episode if I get enough questions to warrant it. Uh, If you're anti-Facebook, I get it. Some people are. You can also tweet your questions to us, again, at Lions of Liberty. And you can also shoot me an email, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. And now, without further ado, it's time for some Letters of Liberty. Hey, hey, baby, I want to read your Letters of Liberty. Yeah, that just happened. That just happened. That was my first attempt at a cheesy little jingle to get us into this segment. If you like it, great. If you hate it, even better. Tell me why and and submit something better or another idea. I'm just messing around. I'm just having fun. Anyway, our first letter of liberty today comes from Kyle Wagner, who asks, What do you think of the Dylan Roof punishment? What would you do if you were on his jury? Would you have been the lone dissenter saving his life? Kyle, that's a very interesting question because, I mean, conceptually, I don't actually have a problem with the death penalty uh, at the base level, conceptually. (laughs) If we're talking about, I mean, anyone that supports self-defense almost really has to say that at some point it's okay to kill somebody in that manner. So I'm, I'm okay with taking a life of a wrongdoer, if that makes any sense. But of course, self-defense and a immediate situation is a little bit different than when you send someone through the justice system. And now, again, I, I can't say I conceptually am against the, the idea of capital punishment necessarily, but I'm certainly against the way it's being used in this country. I'm certainly against the precedent that it sets to allow the state to have that kind of power, especially when we've seen so many people falsely convicted. Many people have actually been put to death put to death, and later been proven innocent. And many people might cite Dylan Roof's statement that he 
wanted to be put to death. That's essentially what he wanted to happen to him. He should be put to death in his own mind. But uh, since when do we care what the actual murderer thinks? I mean, why should that even be a remote factor when it comes to administering justice? I don't think it should at all. If anything, if you really want to punish somebody, if that's what the criminal justice system is about to you, and it's really not to me, uh, to me it should be more about retribution or, in extreme cases, keeping dangerous people away from the rest of society. But if you think it should be about punishment, what worse punishment could you give Dylan Roof than life in prison when he'd prefer to be put to death. Now, to get back to your very specific question, Kyle, though, I like to think, I mean, it's hard to say what you would really do in a given situation, but I'd like to think, yes, I would oppose putting him to death for a number of reasons. The the prime one being, you can't take death back. And it's really not about Dylan Roof. It's about, we probably shouldn't have the death penalty at all, because once you kill somebody, especially in this criminal justice system, and as it stands now, so many people are wrongfully jailed, in prison, etc., you can't go back on a death penalty once it happens. You can't go back on it. And not only that, it's often inhumane. How many prisoners have you seen put to death who didn't die right away, who sat there suffering, shaking for 13, 15 minutes? As far as I'm concerned, that constitutes torture. Torture is against the Constitution. Torture is immoral. We shouldn't be doing anything like that. So for the mere fact that once you put a rubber stamp on the death penalty, you're really saying this should also be applied in any other cases where there are murders or someone is convicted of a murder. And that is just not a good thing to have in our criminal justice system. Again, as I said, particularly because so many innocent people have actually been put to death and it's simply inhumane. Uh, at least the way it's done now. So I would I would like to think that I would actually stand and attempt to save Dylan Roof's life against his wishes. Our next letter of liberty comes from Adam Choit. Adam was actually a guest on a special edition of Mr. Johnson's Liberty Hood, hosted by myself, in which he described uh, a little luncheon that he attended with Gary Johnson. So I'll link to that in the show notes. A really interesting episode. But Adam asks, what would Donald Trump have to do so horribly as president to make you slash us say to ourselves in retrospect, I guess Hillary would have been better. It's an interesting question. I guess launching a nuke <laughs> would be one, preemptively, something like that. It's really hard to believe because we know how bad Hillary Clinton is in so many ways, at least libertarians that have been paying attention to her career for the last 20 or 30 years. And we don't know what Donald Trump is going to do as much as people might guess based on a lot of his rhetoric, although his rhetoric is a little bit all over the place, as much as people might guess based on his cabinet, which is kind of all over the place. It's really hard to say, Uh, but that would be one of them. I think another one that's more realistic, especially considering his pick for Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, is if he decides to ramp back up the federal war on drugs. I personally don't believe this is something Donald Trump cares about at all. He's indicated with some of his rhetoric, again, which you can't always necessarily take at face value, that he wants to leave this stuff to the states. And uh, that's probably the best we can ever hope from a president to at least lay off at, at best. Uh, I doubt we're going to have any president that's a, a, a um, pro-drug legalization advocate anytime soon. Uh, So I think the best we can hope for is that he lays off that. But if he were to ramp that up, which I don't think Hillary Clinton would have done, just because that's not really her party's wheelhouse and it would be going against Barack Obama's legacy of really, at least towards the end of his time, ramping backwards and leaving kind of states to do their own thing, especially with the full legalization movements we've been seeing in California, Colorado, Washington, even Washington, D.C. But I I don't think he's going to do it, but that would be one area where I would definitely say, okay, On an issue very important to me, Hillary Clinton might have actually been better. And finally today, I've got a letter of liberty from Austin Broderson, who asks, 
What gets Mark fired up about liberty the most? What gets your blood boiling or gets you the most excited when you see progress being made? And this kind of ties into my last answer because I think the issue that I'm most get enraged over is the war on drugs. And it's so simple to me because this is not a concept that should really be difficult for libertarians. You know, there's a lot of debate amongst libertarians among some issues, uh, abortion being one, immigration being one, intellectual property being one. And I do see why there is that debate, because they are somewhat complicated issues. I don't care what your stance is. I can't really take you seriously if you don't think these are complicated issues, because they are. They certainly are. Uh, No matter if we try to apply libertarian principles or what have you. But you know that's not a complicated issue at all, (laughs) from a libertarian perspective, is the war on drugs. It's very clear to me that you are violating someone's rights egregiously when you attack them and put them in a cage for owning a plant owning a substance, putting a substance in their body. This is basic stuff. At least it should be basic stuff. But it, gets, it, it, it makes me extremely furious when I see someone who is put in jail for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years for selling drugs to a willing customer. Doesn't mean that the drugs are good. Doesn't mean this is a good thing for the customer to be doing. But for Pete's sake, I mean, Michael Santos, a past guest of mine, he only spent only... Only spent, I think, 28 years in prison after being convicted to a little bit more than that. And he was a 22-year-old kid. I don't know if that's his exact age. He was in his early 20s. Go back and listen to the interview. I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to find out the specifics. It's been a while. He was in his early 20s. Got busted for selling cocaine on a pretty large scale. I'm not going to lie. But then he has to spend nearly the rest of his adult life in prison. It's amazing that he even got out and is now doing quite well and is is very successful. So uh, do look into the story of Michael Santos as an aside. Uh, But another one I would say, which is a little more complicated, I think foreign policy can sometimes be complicated, at least more so than the war on drugs. But look, when I see kids being killed, when I see death and destruction around the world, and I know that's coming from my tax dollars, and I really had no way to stop it other than to speak up, and hope enough people eventually agree with me that it comes to an end, that stuff's really troubling because it it just feels like so disconnected, and I feel like a lot of my fellow countrymen and my fellow man, they don't really care enough about that because they don't see it. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. They're brown people. Whatever. It's the Middle East. There's always going to be bombs over there. That kind of attitude really upsets me as well. So honestly, when I see people's rights egregiously violated, whether it's through putting them in prison for owning a plant, or whether it's because they lived in the wrong neighborhood where somebody said a terrorist was, and now their house gets blown up. Yeah, these are the things that get me fired up. That's why I do this show, Austin. That's why I do this program, to spread the ideas of liberty and hope that someday a lot more, a lot higher percentage of my fellow man comes to their senses on these things. Guys, it's been real. I hope you are enjoying the Letters of Liberty. Please keep them coming my way. Again, you can submit them by joining the Lions of Liberty Forum. Just type that in your little search bar on Facebook if you're a real person or you look like one. We'll get you right in there. You can also email me if you're not on Facebook, Mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com. Until next time, folks, be sure to tune back this coming Wednesday for another great edition of Brian McWilliams' Electric Liberty Land. Until then, live long and live free.